to the first Global Energy and Environmental Law podcast. Today is December 20th, 2014. This podcast series is a product of the Committee on International Environmental Law of the American branch of the International Law Association, also known as ABILA. My name is Mayanna Dillinger. I'm an associate professor of law with Western State College of Law in Fullerton, California. I research and write on issues of national and international environmental law and how these issues intersect with business aspects. I'm a co-chair of ABILA's International Environmental Law Committee. My co-chair is Dr. Will Burns. Dr. Burns is the co-executive director of the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment, which is a scholarly initiative of the School of International Service of the American University. Today, we start with the persistent legal and practical problem of climate change and a possible solution known as climate geoengineering. And Dr. Burns, geoengineering has recently resurfaced as a potential short-term preliminary solution to today's climate change problems. But exactly what is it and how does it work? Well, first let me start with a, uh, a generally recognized definition of geoengineering and then talk about some of the broad categories that uh, researchers recognize at this point. The U.S. National Academy of Sciences defines geoengineering as options involving large-scale engineering of the environment in order to combat or counteract the effects of changes in atmospheric chemistry. And we generally define uh, geoengineering divided into two broad categories. The first of these is what we call solar radiation management approaches, or SRM. And solar radiation management approaches seek to reduce the amount of incoming solar radiation that enters the atmosphere and ultimately can be trapped by the, the greenhouse gases that cause radiative forcing and, in turn, warming. Uh, there are various strategies that are being discussed. Perhaps the most uh, popular of these is injection of uh, large amounts of uh, sulfur dioxide aerosols into the stratosphere, which, uh, because they are highly reflective, have high albedo, would reflect more of the incoming solar radiation back out into space. And it's been estimated that we could put enough of these particles in the atmosphere to reduce what we call insulation or the incidence of solar radiation by about 1.8 to 2%. And this, in theory, could uh, uh, return temperatures back to pre-industrial levels if we wished. Or if we were to mediate this and put less of it in the atmosphere, we could... Uh, uh, ratchet down temperatures to some degree in terms of what we're, we're projecting. Another potential SRM strategy is what's called cloud seeding, which is to seek to increase the uh, nuclei in clouds and thus uh, brighten them and reflect uh, solar radiation back out into space. And then the most exotic of the solar radiation management approaches that's been discussed in recent years are, uh, are space mirrors, uh, placing large uh, mirrors on satellites in geosynchronous orbit around the Earth to deflect incoming radiation back into space or to develop uh, billions of what's called frisbees that would be reflective uh, uh, objects that would be placed uh, in orbit in space. So that's the first category. And then the second broad category of gen geoengineering approaches is what we call carbon dioxide removal strategies. And these strategies, as the name implies, seek to store 
or sequester uh, carbon dioxide after it's removed from the atmosphere through various uh, technologies. The, uh, the most popular of these approaches include something called ocean iron fertilization. The theory is, is that we have areas of the ocean that are rich in macronutrients uh, that are critical for the production of zooplankton, such as nitrogen and phosphorus, but lack a critical micronutrient, that being iron. And the idea is, is if we replace large amounts of, of iron filings into the oceans in these areas, primarily the southern ocean uh, in, in, near Antarctica, we would see a proliferation of, of phytoplankton. And phytoplankton take in carbon dioxide uh, for the photosynthetic processes. And uh, proponents of this uh, approach argue that we could produce enough, enough phytoplankton to sequester enough carbon dioxide to reduce uh, temperatures uh, substantially and that it would be very inexpensive. These phytoplankton, after they take in carbon dioxide, some of them would ultimately die and drop to the bottom of the ocean and the uh, carbon dioxide, at least in theory, could be sequestered for uh, hundreds of years. Another uh, carbon dioxide removal approach that's been discussed extensively, including in the latest report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is what we call uh, bioenergy and carbon capture and sequestration. The idea here is to produce energy through, uh, uh, through bioenergy uh, sources, such as uh, uh, crops, algae, switchgrass, etc., and then to uh, capture the carbon dioxide emissions uh, and then to uh, compress that carbon dioxide and ultimately ship uh, the carbon dioxide for storage, either terrestrially or uh, in the world's oceans. And it's been estimated, again, that this approach, at least in theory, uh, could sequester sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide to either uh, substantially bend the curve in terms of the temperature increases that we anticipate through the rest of this century or beyond, or even return uh, temperatures back to, uh, to pre-industrial levels. So, Dr. Burns, these theories sound uh, potentially very, very viable. Why are they then still often called a Band-Aid solution to climate change? Well, if you think about solar radiation management approaches, uh, what, we're, what we're doing in that case is not reducing the greenhouse gases that ultimately are creating the greenhouse effect that, that causes warming, but simply reducing the amount of solar radiation that uh, that contributes it, what that ultimately means is uh, no matter how extensively one applies this approach ultimately if greenhouse gas emissions rise too high it'll overwhelm the ability to uh, deflect enough uh, incoming radiation back out into space to not see substantial increases in, in temperature uh, the other thing is is that we, in many ways, create a sort of Damocles with these solar radiation management approaches. If we were to employ uh, a, a, a sulfur dioxide a dispersion of the atmosphere, for example, and we didn't simultaneously reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the threat that we would have is that if we ever did stop using uh, these approaches or if these approaches failed, uh, we would see 
huge increases in temperature because of the buildup of uh, of greenhouse gases that had that occurred in the interim. And so as a consequence, when it comes to solar radiation management approaches, people believe that this is a is a uh, a bridge or a, or a band aid where we have to simultaneously be uh, aggressively ratcheting down our emissions. Uh, the other thing is, is that if you don't do that, uh, if you don't ratchet down emissions, uh, you would have to keep these technologies in place uh, uh, theoretically forever, and this would impose a huge governance challenge that we've uh, would be unprecedented in history, requiring many future generations to uh, to keep these uh, technologies in place. Uh, in terms of the carbon dioxide removal approaches, uh, it's a little different in the sense that we are uh, uh, sequestering carbon in these cases as opposed to merely trying to deflect solar radiation back into space. But uh, these have limitations also. If uh, one continues to increase the amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions – Ultimately, we would reach a, a, a saturation point where we simply wouldn't have the capabilities of, of storing uh, sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide uh, to make these systems work. And most people believe that uh, even if uh, carbon dioxide removal approaches work, they're not going to be able to sequester anywhere near 100% of uh, of uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which means that ultimately, again, uh, uh, unlimited emissions would, would overwhelm the capability of these systems to, to effectively protect us. I see. That's interesting. Do you think then that's also the reason why this is seen, at least among staunch environmentalists, as somewhat of a controversial solution or even uh, by some as a very controversial solution? Yes, I, I I think probably uh, later in this discussion we'll talk about some of the potential side effects of these approaches. But one of the major concerns that environmentalists have beyond, beyond these side effects is something called a potential moral hazard. And this is the idea that if society and politicians believed that there was a technological fix that would uh, – eliminate the need for them to substantially reduce greenhouse gas emissions, uh, then they would uh, uh, take their uh, their foot off of the accelerator, as it were, in terms of seeking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And obviously, the international policies that we have in uh, place are, are terribly ineffective to date to address these issues, but it would be possible for us to do even less and uh, and that's the fear of some environmentalists and, and others, that uh, that this moral hazard would be created, the perception that we now have a protective blanket and that there's no longer a need to address uh, these issues. And that, of course, in the longer term would prove chimerical because, as I indicated, ultimately any of these technological approaches could be overwhelmed by uh, uh, continued burgeoning uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. Right, interesting. And you mentioned the status of the the legal status in this area, perhaps, and political will and so forth. What about the technology itself, though? What's the status of that? So, for example, what are the prospects for the actual implementation of these technologies right now? Are we talking about something that actually is likely to transpire on any significant scale? Well, it, most of these technologies, it should be emphasized, are are either back-of-the-envelope uh, uh, modeling calculations or laboratory-based speculation. 
one of these areas we have done uh, 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 field experiments, albeit uh, very small, and that's in the area of ocean iron fertilization. To date, there's been 14 of these field experiments to try to assess uh, using a, 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 a relatively small amount of iron in a, in, a, in a limited patch in the oceans to see if placement of iron in the oceans results in a proliferation of phytoplankton and then ultimately the fate of those phytoplankton. Uh, those experiments to, to date incidentally have yielded extremely mixed results and may be a bit of a cautionary tale in terms of the prospects for geoengineering. What we found in some cases, for example, was there was not a substantial proliferation of phytoplankton when, when iron was placed in the oceans. In other cases, we found that even though there was a proliferation of, of these species, uh, ultimately uh, most of them were consumed by, by zooplankton uh, very close to the surface. And as a consequence, there was no prospect that these phytoplankton would, would die with carbon dioxide, uh, substantial amounts of carbon dioxide sequestered uh, within their bodies. And that would, would uh, obviate uh, any prospects for, for carbon sequestration. And, uh, and so uh, it, we've kind of, in most cases, substantially ratcheted down the projections in terms of what ocean iron fertilization would do. But in the cases of most of the other geoengineering approaches that we're talking about, we've had no field experiments. And so we've, um, it's, it's, it's highly speculative. In the case of sulfur injection, proponents argue that we have had a large uh, a scale natural uh, set of experiments, as it were, that provide us some evidence that this approach may work. For example, in 1991, uh, uh, the uh, a volcano known as uh, Mount Pinatubo erupted, and it released about five teragrams of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, which is what many proponents of uh, sulfur dispersion believe would be necessary every two years or so to uh, return temperatures back to pre-industrial levels. And when this uh, occurred, within approximately six months, we saw a decrease in temperature uh, worldwide of approximately half a degree uh, Celsius. And so proponents argue that this proves empirically uh, uh, that, uh, that this, uh, uh, this kind of approach could work. But in the cases of, uh, of, uh, of actual sulfur dispersion experiments, we, we have not done them. Uh, we, there was a proposal to, uh, uh, to uh, initially try to model this with a field experiment last year in England, but because of controversy, including uh, uh, public concern, that experiment was ultimately shut down. And in the case of all of these other technologies, uh, we, uh, we know very little. In the case of bioenergy and carbon capture and sequestration, we do have uh, uh, carbon capture and sequestration uh, um, uh, 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 plants uh, that, uh, that have been established. But again, uh, we're in the very early stages of seeing uh, the, the ultimate prospects for capturing carbon in those cases. And when it comes to scaling these up to the levels that would be necessary to substantially reduce uh, uh, carbon loads in the atmosphere, that remains I extremely speculative in terms of technological capabilities and, and other important things, including cost. 
So that sounds like it still is very much at a preliminary stage. Um, but I noticed, uh, Dr. Burns, that when you mentioned these different experiments, uh, you use the word we a lot. Uh, could you tell uh, me and the listeners who actually are the we part of that? In other words, who are the most the actors that are the most likely to implement these solutions? Are we talking countries, cities, university researchers such as yourself, uh, companies? Um, who are the uh, the actors that are most likely to use these technologies, and could they be limited to perhaps only being implemented in some areas of the Earth where it's uh, the most needed, for instance, in some of the um, hot, dry areas of uh, the USA or even Africa? Well, let me emphasize at the outset that when it comes to uh, research in this context, we're still talking about extremely limited amounts of, of money and extremely uh, limited numbers of of, of researchers. It, it, the United States has uh, has some research uh, in this context that that's being conducted an extremely modest amount. We're probably talking about in the millions of dollars at the at the federal level. Though a lot of what we do in the under the rubric of climate change research, including uh, modeling. Uh, is is helpful in the, in the in the context of geoengineering if we were to ultimately proceed with a full scale research program or uh, de- deployment in the future. There's also initiatives of in this context in Europe. The European Union has uh, funded a a program called UTrace, for example, to seek to uh, uh, develop a better understanding both of uh, of the technological side of geoengineering. And uh, the governance uh, side, which had, I, I know we'll we'll talk about uh, uh, later in our our discussions, uh, but uh, to date uh, this has been extremely limited. On the other hand, it, it appears uh, to to those of us that are following this, uh, 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 for better or worse, that uh, there may be uh, increasing impetus to to look at geoengineering in, as in earnest. Uh, for example. Uh, the U.S. National Academy of Science is uh, conducting a, a very large-scale study right now of, of these technologies and is about to release that study uh, within uh, the next couple of months. And a lot of times uh, when the National Academy of Science uh, uh, mobilizes on an issue such as this, it ultimately leads to uh, government research programs. And I know proponents of geoengineering at least are are hoping that, that that's ultimately what, what will happen in this case. Uh, there's uh, also... Uh, uh, ongoing research uh, within uh, universities in in Europe uh, and uh, and small scale research in uh, in universities uh, in the United States in this context. But uh, again, we're talking about extremely uh, limited amounts of of money and the the number of of active researchers in this field is probably still. Uh, more in the in the category of perhaps a hundred than 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 thousands or or tens of thousands. The answer to the question of of who could deploy this is uh, um, is is an interesting one. It, it, because these technologies uh, do not, uh, in in many cases, are not terribly sophisticated. Uh, it, 
it would be possible and and are very expensive in some cases it would be possible for even very wealthy individuals such as a bill gates or a richard branson uh, to be able to deploy them for example uh, a solar radiation management approach such as sulfur aerosol dispersion uh, which could be done uh, using delivery vessel, vessels such as uh, 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 weather balloons or or planes uh, could be done by by somebody with that kind of uh, wealth. The same thing with uh, with a pr- an approach such as uh, as cloud brightening. Uh, it could be done by a, a small country that uh, that found itself in in desperate straits. But I think that's not that realistic. I think in the um, ultimately in the in the longer term. If we are to see deployment of these approaches, it's probably going to be by by large either developed countries or large developing countries such as a, as such as a China or India. Mm-hmm. And the reason I believe that is if a uh, if a small country were to seek to do this, uh, there there might be large resistance by the world community, certainly in the shorter term, and the the either diplomatic pressures economic pressures or or uh, or threats of military action that larger countries could bring to bear on a small country would likely uh nip one of these kind of initiatives in the bud and if an individual uh began to do this again uh, uh governments most likely would be able to uh to to uh to stop it very quickly so i think in the longer term uh, the prospects probably both for large-scale research and development and deployment are most likely uh, in, a, in a country such as the United States or a consortium of the United States and Europeans or, or a large uh, uh, Asian country such as China. Now, the, the other question that you asked in terms of regional deployment, this is possible uh, but again, it's highly speculative what the impacts would be. There are people uh, uh, in this field, for example, Michael McCracken at the Climate Institute in Washington, D.C., who argue that one of the ways that we can avoid potential negative side effects of these approaches, and again, I know we'll talk about those later, but uh, just as a placeholder, uh, recognition of these potential negative side effects, he argues that these potential negative side effects uh, could be uh, could be obviated or perhaps even eliminated by smaller scale deployment of 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 geoengineering technologies even at the regional scale for example the use of uh, uh, sulfur dispersion in areas such as uh, as uh, as uh, the Antarctic to try to reduce uh, the the threats of of melting of ice masses that uh, that uh, pose the threat of uh, substantial increases of sea level rise. The problem with that is that it remains highly uh, uncertain whether. Uh, these approaches can be limited in terms of regional effects. And our understanding of atmospheric modeling of putting substantial amounts of substances in the atmosphere and their ultimate fates in terms of uh, atmospheric conditions, feedback mechanisms, etc., remains extremely uh, rudimentary. And so it's unclear uh, whether we would be able to do that. I see. So I noticed when you're talking about these um, things that you're also using the words uh, risk and the fact that all these solutions are highly speculative and unknown and so forth. And so I think that ties into the issue of 
Who's going to make the decisions about this? I think a lot of people are worried about the lack of regulations of this uh, of these solutions, uh, whether they be at the regional or perhaps even the larger supranational scale. So who do you think should make the decisions and who are likely to going to be making legal decisions on the possible implementation of climate engineering? Is it going to be, for instance, a select handful of key nations? Is it going to be, are we going to be trying to reach a broader international solution? Um, where do you see the regulations of this uh, going? Right. Well, it, it, let me let me mention some of the risks first to, as a as a way of framing that that question. Um, beyond beyond the uh, the broader risk of moral hazard that we talked about before, the possibility that countries simply will uh, will reduce their commitments to uh, to mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, some of these technologies pose serious threats to human beings and to uh, and to ecosystems. Uh, if you take ocean iron fertilization, for example, one of the uh, threats of producing a proliferation of phytoplankton is that you don't get to pick and choose what kind of phytoplankton are produced. It's it's largely a crapshoot, and. Uh, one of the threats that that poses is that you may fundamentally alter the nature of ocean ecosystems. For example, in one of the uh, small-scale field experiments that I referred to uh, uh, above, there was a proliferation of a, uh, of a of a phytoplankton species called Phasistis antarctica, and it turns out that this phytoplankton species was quite aggressive. Uh, outcompeted other phytoplankton species in the area, uh, largely occupied just for a very short period of time, uh, uh, a substantial ecological niche in that area. Uh, and it turned out that uh, it was largely uh, unpalatable to zooplankton species. And so the threat on a larger scale, if if one were to do this, is that you could have a proliferation of phytoplankton species that uh, could could not serve as 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 food for for zooplankton, and you could get what biologists call it as a trophic cascade, meaning that you lose uh, a large assemblage of uh, of the zooplankton species in an area, uh, which in turn would create a knockoff effect for species that uh, that feed upon these zooplankton species, and um, there's also the threat. That uh, that this proliferation of phytoplankton could create uh, anoxic dead zones because phytoplankton would take up oxygen in the areas. Uh, this uh, also could produce substantial amounts of uh, of nitrous oxides, which are an extremely potent greenhouse gas, which might offset the benefits of taking up uh, carbon dioxide or might even result in a net increase in, in warming uh, as, a, as a consequence. If you look at uh, solar radiation management approaches, if you were to put substantial amounts of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, it might ultimately uh, alter precipitation patterns. And some researchers have concluded that what it may do is uh, totally shut down the monsoons uh, from from time to time in areas such as as South Asia, or result in substantial diebacks in 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 tropical rainforests as a, a result of a decrease in precipitation. And again, uh, while proponents like to cite uh, the volcanic event in uh, Mount Pinatubo in '91 as proof that this approach can work. 
one of the more sobering uh, conclusions that we saw is uh, a year after Mount Pinatubo uh, erupted, we had the lowest stream flow of the Ganges River in, the, in, in recorded history. And uh, uh, a lot of researchers speculated this was because of a uh, uh, an alteration of precipitation patterns. And so uh, if you were to lose the monsoon in South Asia, for example, you're talking about uh, uh, rainfall that's critical for the sustenance of a billion people. And, and uh, losses of tropical rainforests in, in the Amazon obviously have huge implications in terms of ecosystems, hydrologic cycles, etc. So these are some of the kinds of risks that we're talking about. And so obviously there's concerns that uh, the world community needs to be engaged in deciding if we should go down this path, whether it be even the initial stages of research and development, uh, because research and development can have a life of its own. It can create politically vested interests that almost ineluctably lead us to full-scale deployment, some argue, or ultimately deployment. Um, and to date, we have had some efforts to uh, uh, to seek to govern some of these technologies and then some discussion of other potential appropriate international or national frameworks for doing so. At the international level, we've had two regimes that have sought to regulate ocean iron fertilization, and that's the uh, London uh, Dumping Convention under, under uh, MARPOL and the Convention on Biological Diversity. Uh, as a consequence of proposals for ocean iron fertilization experiments, the Convention on Biological Diversity uh, passed a, 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 a series of resolutions that essentially say that um, ocean iron fertilization experiments should ultimately only be permitted if there's clear scientific uh, purposes, uh, if there's no commercial motives, and if they're done on a, a, a small scale. Okay, Now, as 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 uh, as anybody who's uh, listening as a law person knows, these are a, a fairly uh, uh, vague uh, uh, sort of terms. What constitutes small scale? How do we operationalize that? Uh, how do we suss out uh, uh, whether it's for a scientific purpose, et, et, et cetera? But this is what the, the CBD uh, had done. Uh, the other problematic aspect of this resolution, of course, is that CBD resolutions are not uh, legally binding, albeit they may have uh, 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 some some moral suasion in terms of uh, terms of the parties. And then the uh, London Dumping Convention also uh, uh, has established a, a resolution that essentially seeks to uh, limit. Uh, ocean iron fertilization to uh, to small scale sort of experiments, and it established an elaborate uh, risk assessment uh, framework for anybody that is uh, promoting promoting an experiment of uh, of this sort. Uh, the limit in terms of the uh, uh, the the London Convention is is uh, membership is much more limited than uh, under the Convention on Biological Diversity, for example. Also. Uh, the focus has been on uh, impacts of geoengineering approaches on the oceans and, in the case of London, on ocean iron fertilization. And so uh, the scope of what uh, these regula this regulatory purview would be is extremely limited and doesn't appear to encompass 
most of the other things that we're talking about, such as uh, sulfur dispersion, uh, cloud brightening, bioenergy, etc. So with that in mind, there have been uh, discussions about what other international regimes might be involved. One logical regime for a lot of people would be the Framework Convention on Climate Change. This is the institution that has the most expertise in the context of climate change, which is obviously the uh, the focus of what this approach would be utilized for. Presumably, if we were to deploy these technologies, we would need to, or at least hopefully, we would simultaneously agree to a strict schedule of simultaneously reducing greenhouse gas emissions so that we could phase out the use of these technologies at some point in the future. And it would make more sense if, if that was our goal to be doing that under the rubric of the same institution as opposed to having two different regimes seeking to cooperate to make this happen. And there are substantial amounts of scientific expertise within the Framework Convention as well as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which informs uh, the, the science of the Framework Convention that would be pertinent in the context of geoengineering. On the other hand, uh, there may be some problems in, in using the Framework Convention. First of all, it's not clear that it would have legal jurisdiction over solar radiation management approaches. If you look at the Framework Convention throughout, it talks about its mission to be reducing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, addressing those emissions and the impacts that they have on climate. But in the case of solar radiation management approaches, you're not seeking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You're seeking to reduce solar radiation. On the other hand, there are some more broad uh, references in the in the the framework convention to talk that that talk about uh, 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 regulating approaches that that could have an impact on the climate, for example, and one could argue that to the extent that solar radiation management approaches could impact the climate uh, in the ways that we were talking about before in terms of altering precipitation patterns, et cetera and temperatures that uh, the framework convention could uh, it could have jurisdiction. But it's also problematic because given, given the, the, uh, the massive uh, problems of the Framework Convention in the context of mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, it's unclear whether the parties could ever reach agreement in, uh, in terms of addressing uh, this, uh, these kind of technologies. And it's unclear if an individual country believed that it was critical to deploy one of these technologies to save uh, themselves from catastrophic climate change. Let's say, for example, 15, 20 years from now, China believed that ultimately rising sea levels would, would overwhelm huge amounts of coastal regions, and they decided that they were going to deploy one of these technologies. It's highly unclear that they would not do so as a consequence of the framework convention on climate change and its parties asking them not to. Uh, what we what we probably would hope is that ultimately, if the framework convention were engaged early on in this process and we started establishing protocols that for international research and we sought to engage stakeholders at an early stage and we created transboundary environmental impact assessment approaches that 
even if a country unilaterally decided to uh, deploy these technologies, they would take into consideration their obligations under international law. But it remains speculative. And then there's other potential regimes that could be involved with some of these technologies. For example, we have something, uh, we have a uh, uh, a convention called NMOD, which was created after the U.S. sought to uh, increased precipitation to flood the Ho Chi Minh Trail during Vietnam. And uh, the treaty was created to stop the use of weather modification techniques, but only when those weather t- modification techniques uh, have hostile purposes. And so uh, beyond the fact that the regime only has about 80 parties, some people say that this wouldn't get us very far because a country could always argue that if it were deploying geoengineering, it wasn't doing so for hostile purposes, but quite the opposite, to try to create uh, 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 the prospects for protecting uh, the world environment. And that that probably would would prove successful, um, and then you might use the uh, uh, the ozone convention uh, to to look at solar radiation management approaches because one of the other threats that sulfur dispersion might create, for example, is a cooling of the stratosphere that would enhance the catalytic process that breaks down the ozone layer because of the ozone depleting substances that are resonant in that area. And so the ozone convention might have some role in this. And then some of the regional pollution conventions might. But uh, the the challenge that we have is is finding a regime that's likely to be both uh, effective from a standpoint of getting countries to cooperate and is comprehensive enough in its scope to be able to encompass all of the technologies that that we're talking about. And the, the other possibility that some have, have argued that would be possible would be to create a, a new regime, uh, whole cloth. But again, given the substantial resistance of a large number of countries to even looking at this approach, um, I, I think that would be ex- ex- extremely ad- uh, uh, difficult and probably counterproductive. I see. So to me, that actually sounds like you um, you recognize this. I think uh, most legal scholars will that the international legal governance systems are not really fully ready to address these issues yet. And you also mentioned how some uh, rogue nations, uh, if you call them that, or at least uh, individual nations, such as perhaps an India or China or um, other countries uh, like that, might simply go ahead with this anyway. And that, uh, or that alternatively, as we talked about before, two corporate innovators might simply implement uh, geoengineering solutions, whether or not other nations agree. But is this necessarily uh, a risk, do you think, or could this be seen as uh, potentially a promising solution? Uh, for instance, uh, after all, a lot of technical innovation actually came from uh, uh, corporate the corporate side uh, in relation to other environmental problems, such as the notoriously bad air pollution here in LA in the 70s, and more recently the ozone layer problem in the 1990s. Um, and you also mentioned Richard Branson. Could this all be seen to be actually not so much of a risk, but um, actually maybe a potential benefit to uh, to climate change, at least at the initial stages? Well, I think I think that if we decided to go down the road of a of a full scale research program to try to look at the the potential benefits and potential negative implications of these approaches to try to assess of whether 
whether this is 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 a viable approach and whether it's approach that makes sense in a standpoint of looking at what our business as usual scenarios are in terms of climate change it would make sense for the uh, the corporate sector to have a role given their understanding of technologies given their ability often to be more nimble uh, than uh, uh, than the public sector uh, on the other hand I think it would be critical that there be governance to ensure that uh, that not the only consideration is profit because as we've talked about you have huge equity concerns here uh, if if we're ultimately going to decide that these technologies make sense uh, from a um, from a, uh, uh, a standpoint of the of the world community at large, given the 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 real threat of of that climate change poses, are we willing to imperil uh, large uh, populations? Uh, and and are we if we're willing to do that? Are we going to compensate these populations? And and what would that mean? Or are we going to try to ameliorate these impacts by uh, a smaller scale deployment of these technologies which might not necessarily ratchet down temperatures as much as full scale deployment would have but would buy us some time for example as we seek to decarbonize the economy but wouldn't pose such inequitable risks to uh, to populations around the world those kind of questions are are best conducted not in the corporate sector, where where the bottom line is the bottom line, but in international fora such as the United Nations or or the regimes that we talked about, so uh, I certainly wouldn't forestall a role for the corporate sector, but I believe that it would have to be subject to very strict uh, regulation and ultimate decision making in the hands of, of of governments who take into consideration these these broader issues. So let's just uh, think about a thought experiment here. What though if uh, if some corporation decides to go ahead and experiment with this anyway and then causes uh, harm to populations uh, either within national borders or beyond them? Who then uh, is liable for that, I suppose? Or if the company itself did it right now, would they be liable? What if they acted under um, a future governance systems? Would the uh, nations then in which these corporations act be liable as well? In other words, who's financially liable for the uh, potentially extreme uh, financial and health-related consequences of this? Yeah, it's a it's a very good question. I mean, one would think that if uh, if well if if it were corporations that were were authorized uh, by by governments to uh, to deploy these technologies, one would think that the uh, the governments themselves would be responsible for the acts of their uh, of their uh, uh, of the corporation. Certainly, under uh, principles of, such as the ILC's uh, conception of state responsibility, if uh, these co- uh, corporations were to engage in these operations as as rogues, um, it would become a, a closer question, I guess, the question of whether countries uh, should have known that these activities were occurring. Uh, ultimately, also the classification of these activities. For example, if one uh, views these uh, activities as ultra-hazardous uh, in, in nature, then uh, principles of liability, uh, principles of negligence, etc., 
uh, causality issues are, are radically different. Uh, and so the classification of these technologies uh, in that uh, kind of hierarchy of, of activities uh, would, uh, would make a huge difference in terms of how one might uh, assign uh, liability. Uh, though I think ultimately a good argument could be made that these would fall under the uh, rubric of ultra-hazardous uh, uh, activities, which means that uh, uh, standards in terms of uh, duty of care and causality, et cetera, would be, would be very different, and, and uh, you, you'd have far more prospect in terms of liability for, for individual governments where, where these corporations might exist. Um, I ultimately think that in, in most cases, these uh, th- there may be there may be technologies provided by corporations that help facilitate this, but uh, my my belief is that ultimately, if these technologies are ever deployed, they're probably going to be deployed directly by by governments, and so the liability issues may be a little cleaner, as it were. I see. Yes, because if companies implemented these uh, solutions either on a test basis or uh, for the real purpose, so to speak, then uh, presumably they would have insurance covering their actions. But such insurance policies may not cover, though, um, all the liability that could arise in this connection, right? Right. Yeah, and uh, and be and being able to ultimately predict, you know, what what these implications may be may be so speculative that it may right. be very difficult to uh, to obtain uh, insurance. You can just imagine right. the, the actuarial folks uh, head spinning when, they, yeah. when they're presented with the prospects of, of some of these. Now, of course, it, uh, scale is a big part of it, too. If you're talking about a, uh, a, uh, an extremely small experiment where you're putting uh, very limited amounts of iron in a, in a, in a small patch in a, in a huge ocean like uh, like the Southern Ocean, uh, it, it, it may not be of terrible concern. But the, the problem is, in many ways, is for a lot of these technologies to really be able to separate the what we call the signal-to-noise ratio, in other words, seeing that the changes that, that we might uh, assess are not a function of natural variability, but are actually a function of the the technology, would require deployment at a scale, in some cases, that are virtually full scale. And as a consequence, the the threats that we're talking about are very real. So in, in the very early stages, probably these questions of liability are 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 not terribly momentous. But as we scale up to try to determine uh, what this would look like at the scale that would be um, uh, uh, would move the meter in terms or or move move the uh, temperature gauge, uh, mm-hmm. then then these threats would become very real. Right, um, and in that connection, I noticed uh, also you talked a lot about uh, uh, populations and how many people could perceivably be put at risk uh, with with this. Um, I'm interested, though, to in returning to some of the ethical challenges that uh, we started talking a little bit about, and in particular, whether uh, you think that we should only consider uh, people to be sort of the uh, the, uh, the biggest group of populations at issue here, or do you think maybe uh, sort of we could look at it also as um, a, an animal-related issue? What about all the many endangered species problems, potentially even in you know, endangered plant species and so forth? Do you see this as being... Uh, an issue only in relation to people, or do you see it being uh, broader and also encompassing other life forms? 
Well, there certainly would be threats to other life forms. And the Convention on Biological Diversity, as I indicated, that had taken uh, uh, recognition of this when the context of ocean iron fertilization has recognized that. And its primary remit is, is obviously biodiversity and, 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 and plants and animals. And it recognized that ocean iron fertilization, because of the, some of the ecosystem threats we talked about before, uh, could pose a very real threat to, to ocean ecosystems. I think in the case of a lot of these other technologies, uh, obviously the same sort of threats. Uh, the, the termination effect that we talked about earlier, for example, if you uh, didn't mitigate greenhouse gas emissions and you had huge pulses of, of heat as a consequence of the failure of these technologies to work, or, for example, let's say you deployed solar rate, uh, uh, sulfur dispersion and it and it and it was it was working for ten years or so or twenty years, and all of a sudden it was uh, on a regular basis shutting down uh, the the monsoon in South Asia. You might have a country such as India threatening the world with nuclear war if it didn't start stop using that technology, and it might compel us to stop using it. Uh, at that point, if we had the kind of pulse of heat that we're thinking about, maybe ten to fifteen times greater than under a business-as-usual technology, then it's going to be nearly impossible for a lot of ecosystems to be able to adapt. And so you'd have very threat, real threats, not only to human institutions, but uh, to, to plants and animals. So I think that would, would, would clearly have to be looked at, both from a standpoint of the interest of those species, qua species, but also because of our interdependence uh, and dependence on so many of those species for life as, as, as we know it. So th- that would definitely need to be assessed. Interesting. So in international environmental law, there's something uh, is known as the precautionary principle, uh, which, as you know, holds that in the event of environmental uncertainty, we should err on the side of safety. Uh, but do you then think, uh, in relation to what you just talked about, that that necessarily, though, militate against proceeding uh, with geoengineering? Uh, or could it even be said that uh, that in order to alleviate some of the uh, very adverse uh, effects of climate change on ecosystems, that actually the precautionary principle might even be said to militate for uh, going ahead with this technology? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, and some proponents of geoengineering have have argued that they, they've they've said it, it, the 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 trigger for impl- uh, implementation of the precautionary principle is where there's uh, threats of of serious or irreversible harm, and they say if you look at climate change scenarios, and at this point we're on track for temperature increases of somewhere between three and four degrees Celsius by the end of the century, given what the current pledges are, the kind of new bottom-up system we have in terms of climate policymaking at the international level, will we'll, we'll put us on. And that a three to four degree Celsius increase in temperature could have catastrophic implications in terms of human and, and uh, natural ecosystems. And so as a consequence, to the extent that these are serious and irreversible, it argues in favor of deployment of these technologies, even if uh, we don't have absolute certainty in terms of, uh, of how they would operate. I 
I'm a bit squeamish about that interpretation because I think what it implies is is a uh, is 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 kind of a, uh, a, a a bipolar choice, and those choices are either catastrophic climate change in the future or deployment of of geoengineering. Uh, that and I think there's a third way, and I think geoengineering in some ways may distract from that if people really do believe that it ultimately could be a savior. And again, this is that moral hazard issue I'm talking about. Uh, there, we certainly could uh, uh, implement policies, for example, to, uh, to substantially accelerate the uh, market penetration of renewables. And as a consequence, uh, some have estimated that instead of renewables occupying Thirty-five uh, percent of uh, thirty or thirty-five percent of the uh, of the energy production market in in twenty thirty, we could get as high as seventy or eighty percent, and this would substantially reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions and ultimately projected temperature increases. We could substantially ratchet up our commitment to adaptation uh, to uh, uh, to to help us in this uh, in this context. Also, we could implement policies to reduce uh, what we call black carbon, which essentially are, is, is soot uh, and, it, and produced by things such as diesel emissions that uh, in many ways could reduce uh, uh, warming in the shorter term uh, dramatically. For example, the United Nations Environment Program has estimated that if we were to substantially reduce uh, uh, black carbon emissions, we could uh, temper uh, projected temperature increases by as much as uh, half a degree Celsius or more by 2050, and this would buy us time. And so I'm not sure that our only choices are either runaway climate change or geoengineering. The The third approach uh, that might be the most precautionary is to uh, try to increase our commitment to decarbonizing the economy, and I'm not certain that we've we've actually done that in earnest. Uh, that's that's the first thing that I'd say, and the second thing is, I, from a moral standpoint, I'm squeamish about this invocation of the precautionary principle because it seems unethical for those that are most responsible for creating the climate catastrophe to now be able to invoke the precautionary principle as a justification for using technologies that also could potentially visit catastrophe again on the most vulnerable in the world right um uh, one of the things that we know one of the great inequities in the standpoint of climate change is that those that are most likely to be adversely affected by climate change are almost in all cases those that are least responsible for uh visiting climate change upon the world and in many ways when we look at geoengineering, we may be seeing the same thing. Uh, uh, the most serious impacts of, of ozone depletion, the most serious impacts of, of crop losses, for example, in, in developing countries such as in the Amazons or in South Asia, will again, uh, in the case of geoengineering, potentially be visited upon the most vulnerable. And so um, I, I find it a bit, a bit morally questionable to allow... Uh, uh, the perpetrators of, of the policies that induce climate change to invoke the precautionary principle uh, in this case and say, well, the world is screwed up, uh, so we, we've got to use geo uh, when they're the people that, uh, that have, have, have created that situation. 
But playing the devil's advocate here, Dr. Burns, couldn't you also turn that around and see it from the other point of view that uh, that you're exactly right, that poor and vulnerable, uh, the poorer countries are the ones that are the most vulnerable, yet they're also not the ones that have caused uh, the problem to begin with. So um, shouldn't they have an ethical or even a legal right to engage in geoengineering to uh, to help themselves out of the problem that we have uh, visited upon them, so to speak? Uh, you're talking about... Uh, in time, we could do this or that, but uh, at the same time, the scientific community agrees that there isn't much more time for, uh, for in particular, some of those uh, countries that are at uh, at the most risk. Yeah, you know, I th it's 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 not an unreasonable argument. Uh, I have to say, though, most of the time when I'm hearing people talking about deploying these technologies. Uh, it is not the most vulnerable uh, small countries that are talking about utilizing these, but uh, the countries most responsible for uh, actually getting us into this mess. Again, the United States, the Europeans, and China. Uh, if if a country such as uh, Vanuatu uh, came to the world and and uh, proposed deploying these technologies as a consequence of desperation. I have to admit, from a moral standpoint, it'd be a much closer question for me. Yeah. I, I, you know, point taken. Right, I agree. Um, so, some scientists are said to be scared about even talking about these uh, solutions for the reasons we perhaps have talked about the moral um, hazard problems and other problems related to it. Where do you think these fears stem from? Do you think they stem from admitting defeat, so to speak, and not being able to solve the climate change via technological solutions so far? Or are even scientists afraid of political repercussions? Or uh, why hesitate even uh, discussing this in scientific and uh, perhaps political contexts? Yeah, I think it's a combination of all the things that you talked about. I, I think that some are afraid of distracting from the the mitigation and adaptation uh, agenda and and ultimately harbor uh, uh, locking in um, uh, uh, another generation or two of fossil fuel uh, infrastructure that ultimately uh, uh, dooms us even if uh, geoengineering in the shorter term provides some kind of technological fix so I think that's that's uh, one consideration I think another consideration is that a lot of people are afraid of the unintended consequences of these technologies and see a bit of hubris here in the sense that what we're saying with geoengineering is that we have created an earth that is potentially untenable for uh, for our existence uh, within the next century a couple of centuries uh, because of the the technologies that we've chosen to deploy but the answer to this is deploying more technology, right? It's a technological optimist approach that uh, that that is uh, that makes uh, uh, many people uh, uh, squeamish. And then uh, also, I think a lot of people are concerned about uh, uh, conflict, uh, international conflict that be could be created by these technologies if we see these side effects and. Uh, and certain countries are ultimately uh, the ones that have, that have perpetrated this. Uh, and I, I know that some climate negotiators also believe that this would make it more difficult to establish north-south cooperation when it comes to climate mitigation. Many southern countries are extremely hostile about the, uh, the idea of geoengineering because they believe that it's an effort by northern countries largely 
to uh, get themselves off of the hook in terms of what uh, their commitment should be to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And as a consequence, it might make it even more difficult in fora such as the Framework Convention to uh, continue to, to negotiate. And we know that's critical because the, uh, uh, the, uh, the South is already responsible for about 56% of greenhouse gas emissions at this point. And by the time we get to 2030, they'll be responsible for 70 or 75% of those emissions. And so ultimately, uh, uh, cooperation between the North and the South on this issue is is critical in a way uh, that uh, that we may not have totally realized in in uh, in the early '90s when we were uh, formulating this agreement. Right. Um, interesting. I noticed you mentioned um, in today's discussion nations a lot, uh, corporations. We talked a little bit about the uh, the interest of uh, non-human life forms as well. What about looking at this problem from the general public's point of view and uh, the potential uh, interest that the general public may have in public participation? After all, it's the general public that will be largely affected by this. Um, so in general, uh, the public may have rights of insight into uh, government-based uh, geoengineering plans via, for instance, local and national public participation laws, such as in this country, the Freedom of Information Act. But doesn't the fact that there's no general public insight into corporate plans and corporate decision-making powers create a problem if this were to be solved from a quasi-corporate point of view or angle? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the reasons that uh, that we created our organization was to seek to uh, increase uh, public conversation about these issues because one of our fears at the forum is that the discussion to date on these issues is largely driven by a scientific technocracy. And ultimately, the interests of that technocracy, and in some cases, maybe it's it's uh, naive uh, assumptions about how these technologies would ultimately be governed or used by <laughs> by politicians uh, could re- could result in disasters, and so we've sought to engender more public conversation on these issues. But you're absolutely right when it comes to um, uh, uh, corporate uh, role in this, that becomes much more difficult. Uh, there'd be uh, obvious considerations in terms of protection of. Uh, of, of secrets and uh, and uh, uh, proprietary uh, development of proprietary technologies again is going to make it much more difficult to have that kind of public input into the process. Uh, there has been substantial discussion when uh, when scientists and others have been trying to develop codes of conduct for geoengineering research, at least to uh, ensure. That uh, that this kind of data is is open uh, to the public, and um, at this point, uh, there's probably been lip service to that concept. But I think ultimately, as we sought to develop these uh, this research and and perhaps deployment of these technologies, it's far more likely that we'll see the more traditional model, where corporations will say we necessarily can't have open books when it comes to these uh, information. Uh, because we need to protect that from a from a you know a profit standpoint, and then it becomes extremely difficult. And you know when you think of things like the Freedom of Information Act, obviously there's exceptions, uh, um, uh, pretty 
uh, broad exceptions when it comes to a lot of uh, corporate secrets, right. and presumably those would exist here unless we uh, uh, very clearly did did not permit that. But then uh, it may severely denude uh, the role of the corporate sector in terms of its incentives to engage in this kind of research and, and development. So it becomes a very difficult question. And then you know, the even broader question from a standpoint of information disclosure is, is let's say we're looking at this uh, research in the United States. Uh, are we required from a standpoint of information disclosure to ensure that uh, uh, individuals and groups in other countries have access to this information, those that are potentially adversely impacted? Uh, if if this is going to potentially shut down the monsoon in South Asia, right. uh, is it important for us to be providing that information and in languages that can be understood and in what forum? And who are we providing that to? Are we providing it to government elites? Um, are we necessarily required to seek to um, penetrate below that level and, and have a direct conversation with citizens in these countries. Um, it's extremely uh, challenging uh, issues from a standpoint of uh, regulatory governance and ethics. And ethics, exactly, and perhaps also corporate ethics. Yep. Um, some corporations, though, might claim that they have very uh, strong codes of conduct and rules uh, for their own conduct, such as uh, the notion of corporate social responsibility. A lot of critics, though, might say that that uh, is unlikely to really uh, govern these corporations sufficiently. Uh, we're almost out of time here, but just for a brief comment on where do you think uh, corporate social responsibility uh, plays into all this? Well, I think that if corporations were in, in engaged in these kind of activities, I think certainly in the early stages to... Uh, to dispel what would be large and and you know legitimate uh, fears, there would have to be an agreement that, uh, and in some ways paradoxically, at least in the early stages of of research, that there was no commercial motives that would, that these technologies were not initially being looked at from a standpoint of of commercial deployment. But is that realistic, though? I I don't know, uh, but I I I if I were if I were the corporate, if I were the the corporate sector in this context, if I wanted to think realistically that research and development were going to uh, proceed, I think it'd be very difficult to get public buy-in without some kind of uh, requirement of this nature. Uh, it may be ultimately that the corporate sector cannot agree to that, and that this program is ultimately driven uh, by the uh, uh, the government sector. Yes. And uh, with with some uh, with some effort to scrutinize what the what the corporate sector might provide off the shelf, uh, uh, if 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 it's broader, if if corporations are willing to agree initially uh, that uh, uh, that these at least the research is not being done with an eye to commercial deployment, uh, it, it may be possible to uh, to proceed. Uh, I think you're just gonna you're gonna need transparency. You're gonna need uh, some ability to uh, to have corporations probably agree to uh, engagement and research with uh, researchers from other countries, especially from the South. Again, that may be extremely difficult to uh, to get that kind of buy-in. And so, 
I would, if, if I had to speculate, I would say that the kind of constraints that you're talking about would ultimately result in these programs being largely uh, driven by uh, by government research, as they have uh, for the most part uh, to to date. Uh, there are some private corporations that are engaged in in this kind of research. Uh, for example, uh, David Keith at Harvard. Uh, who is a, uh, a prominent geoengineering scientist, uh, also has a, a, a private uh, uh, for-profit corporation. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. a, a Klaus Lackner, who used to be at um, Columbia and is now moving to Arizona State, also has a, a private uh, company. But, uh, and, they're, and they're engaged in small-scale research of this sort. But if we were to, uh, to ultimately start talking about governance, the, the constraints that we might place on them uh, might... Uh, ultimately result in them walking away. Right. I think Richard Branson, too, at least some years ago, uh, offered a $1 billion reward for anyone who could come up with a technical solution to climate change. Um, yeah, I, don't yeah. know, I don't know that anyone actually did. Or I don't know, of course, that that would actually be implemented at, at any kind of practical uh, level. But it sounds like from our discussion today, Dr. Burns, that, uh, that you see the solution here or the activities going on in relation to climate geoengineering uh, being more a matter of university and government uh, cooperation so for right now um, I think that's right yeah so in closing i was just going to ask you one last question sort of a little bit of a rhetorical question perhaps but nonetheless uh, what do you personally see as being better running the risk that geoengineering will present unforeseen perhaps run amok style problems but if not present a viable short-term solution to climate change for present generations until some sort of a supranational government solution is potentially found to mitigate what we all know are increasingly severe problems with climate change, or not running this uh, run amok uh, risk of unforeseeability because of the precautionary principle, for example, that you talked about, and to try to provide impetus for a true long-term solution instead uh, but then perhaps, perhaps missing out on an opportunity to save species and combat the climate change problem, um, at least in a preliminary matter, before it's too late. What do you think is better? How do you balance this scale? It, well, in some ways, I, I, I find myself on a third path. Uh, and, and the third path is, is that I believe, given, given the despair of, of the world community about the current status of international climate negotiations. And I, I share that despair. I, I, I really do think we are on a path to a three to four degrees Celsius increase in temperatures by the end of this uh, century, which again could have hugely dire implications, especially for the most vulnerable of the world. I think there's going to be increasing impetus uh, after we come out of Paris, for example, and we now realize what 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 path we're we're ultimately setting ourselves on there's going to be increasing impetus for for geoengineering research and perhaps ultimately a deployment the reason that i ultimately come down on the side of a research program is largely because i believe that the the the, the scarier prospect is that we don't engage the international community in in this uh, uh, work in the, in the shorter term and that somewhere down the road, 20, 30, 40 years from now, a desperate country uh, decides to deploy a technology that has not been fully vetted 
uh, either from a technological standpoint or from a standpoint of taking into consideration the interests of others, and that we, uh, uh, we, we then get catastrophic implications. If we engage in, in research and try to uh, ensure that that research is done at the international level, if we seek to implement things such as transboundary environmental impact assessments, if we look at the role of human rights regimes and, and how that might uh, militate against the use of some of these technologies, then we may be able to sort out the technologies that are truly strange Lovian in, in their implications and, and create the, the kind of norms that will ensure that those technologies are not used in the future and, uh, and ultimately focus on those that may be more benign and that can be governable at the international level in a way that ameliorates potentially adverse implications. And so I think we need an international research program, but with the caveat that it's my hope that one of the the, the benefits of that program is that it would communicate to the world community that going down this path in itself poses huge risks and hopefully provide more of an impetus for us to step on the uh, gas in terms of uh, of mitigating uh, 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 greenhouse gas emissions and and so I I I could support uh, a limited international program uh, with those kind of parameters, but it's my hope that the the world community can get its act together in a way that we ultimately never have to deploy those technologies or that we can deploy them on a, on, on a small enough scale that the, the kind of adverse, large-scale uh, side effects that I talked about would, would never manifest themselves. Great. This was Dr. Burns and his theory on a third path towards a potential solution to climate change. Dr. Burns, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, is the co-executive director of the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment, which is a scholarly initiative of the School of International Service of the American University. Dr. Burns, thank you very much. Thank you. 